Let's get our Bibles out and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Page 1327 on the Pew Bible there in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're grateful. Hope this content is uh, instructive and helpful for you. But also, if you are watching this and this is your regular practice and you are not in fellowship, then you are in sin because the Bible commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so this is just a... Uh, a way that we can uh, supplement and be a blessing when people are uh, away, uh, maybe deployed, unable to be with us, so on and so forth. But it is not a replacement for what God does when we gather together. So a couple questions I want to sort of hang over our heads this morning as we approach these next verses in 2 Corinthians. Uh, there's a multitude of ways. Uh, some would, I won't need to mention. They'll just be obvious to some of you. Uh, some I will mention where God has been so, uh, he's, he's so intentional about little uh, small details along the way. So for example, uh, one, of the, one of the most difficult things to do uh, is to uh, introduce a new Sunday morning sermon series, especially when you're not the primary communicator. And so months back before, uh, you know, we knew I was going to be going to Brazil. And so I told Pastor Matt, uh, I said, listen, we're going to be starting 2 Corinthians the week that I'm in Brazil. And so we'll be finished with Hosea. And so therefore, you can just do a standalone sermon series or you can uh, sermon or you can start 2 Corinthians if you're so inclined. So you pray about it and let the Lord lead you. And I was very confident that he would just preach a standalone sermon because it's, it's challenging to set the pace and the tone of a sermon series, you know, that uh, you won't primarily be communicating. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing. I'd probably spend more time on the first and last sermon of a sermon series than I do any other sermon uh, in, the, in the course of it normally. So. so when he told me that he was going to start the sermon series, I thought, well, wow, okay. And, uh, and then when I watched the, the service on the plane... Uh, I was just so overwhelmed by uh, the message, and not just the message, but how God orchestrated. You see, the text that he preached on last week, as you know, because you were here in person, so it was probably better than even what I saw, was very personal to him. You see, God gave him that opportunity. It was a very personal text to him, and it was a very, uh, as he preach from his heart what God laid on. Then I realized how extraordinarily personal this text today is to me and how God, not, not that I normally wouldn't have preached on this text, but maybe that God just gave me uh, an extra week to think and ponder on these couple of verses that are so personal and meaningful to me. Now the questions I want us to think about are what story are you telling with your life? 
What story are you telling with your life? Your life is telling a story. All of our lives are telling a story. What is the story? If someone walked up to you today and said, well, what's the story your life is telling? Well, what would you say? You know, you have to answer the question. So what is it? What's the story? Something. So I want you to think about what that story is. And then we should drill in a little bit deeper and we should maybe ask a more hmm, probing question. Who determines the story that your life is telling? Who determines the story? So what is the story? And then who determines that story? In other words, well, how did that story become the story? Now, last week, as Pastor Matt talked about, uh, suffering and all of the ways that God uses suffering to teach us things, to show us things, to grow us, to make us who we are. And, and, and really, everything that, uh, that he said is so oftentimes the things that we don't really want to hear. We, we just don't want to hear that. You know, our flesh loves the prosperity gospel. And we have to be devoted to the things that are true and focus on what the Scripture tells us so that we're able to walk in the light as He is in the light. And so as I was pondering, uh, before I knew what He was preaching, I was, I was in Brazil in between services, preaching multiple times every single day. And uh, so I was sitting there thinking about uh, what I was going to preach on. And I was watching this, one of the Brazilian musicians fiddling with his guitar, and I was watching him change a guitar string. And I was thinking about 2 Corinthians, the opening verses. And, and here's what I thought about. So maybe this, this could have been a point from last week, or this could be, uh, my interpretation of last week's message. Christians are like guitar strings. We make no music until we are stretched. We make no music until we are stretched. See, the two in front of Corinthians means that something happened before this, obviously. And, of course, we, most of us in here, are very familiar with that. Because we spent the better part of the last year studying 1 Corinthians. And so it means that there's a history prior to 2 Corinthians. Now Paul has planted this church in Corinth. He spent a year and a half there amongst those people. He uh, loves them, devoted himself to them. When he left there, he went to work in some of the other places like Ephesus. And as he was gone, as he was away, along the way he received word that Things in Corinth weren't going that well, that there were some problems that had erupted. Some sinful behaviors had become to, begun to crop up amongst the uh, church members there at Corinth. And all of this was happening at the hands of some new teachers who were uh, not only introducing some heresy into the church, but they were also actively discrediting Paul. And that was their primary tool for uh, leading the church at Corinth 
astray. And that should be a reminder to us that the most effective way on your listening guide, the most effective way to hinder the truth is to discredit the truth teacher. And I say that because, number one, it's just painfully obvious in Scripture. Obviously, that's going to be the primary attack of the enemy is going to be against the one who is the mouthpiece. And I also say that just to encourage you and to remind you to pray for your pastors and your elders. And as I labored among the, the churches that we have planted, that where I'm talking about places where people didn't, had never heard the name Jesus before. Now there are congregations where worship happens on a weekly basis, where leaders have been trained, where the gospel is being preached, and, and yet, but they are vulnerable because they don't have access to so many of the things that we have access to. And I spent, because I've been away for two and a half years, it's just crazy that I'm preaching on this because I've been living this for the last two weeks. I spent so much of my time uh, working with edifying, straightening out, you know, talking to the leaders, reminding them, my goodness, don't you take your eye off the prize for one second because you'll be swallowed up. That lion is always crouching outside of your door. So pray for your pastors and for your elders. And so 2 Corinthians, these are words. These aren't just, these aren't just words. They, they, they're God's words, but they're also words that God breathed through a pastor who deeply loves these people. And he's willing to deal with some very painful and difficult situations. Not because it's easy or because it's comfortable, but because it's the loving and faithful thing to do. Because he, he genuinely loves them. Therefore, he puts what's best for them above what they desire, which is what God does for us, which is what he taught us last week. Amen? And so these, these teachers were attacking Paul on three primary fronts. Now, just, a, just some help along the way. Every once in a while, I need to remind you, you know, of, of how to listen to a sermon well. And that means that not everything you need to know or remember or that's helpful to you is actually on your sermon guide. So you should always be jotting little notes down in the blank areas and putting little things down. This would be a good place for you to do that. There's three primary areas where they were attacking Paul. Number one, they were attacking him personally. So you should write personally. Number two, relationally. And number three, spiritually. Personally, relationally and spiritually. These are the areas where the enemy attacks to discredit. So personally, what, were the, what they were saying is, they were saying, look at Paul. He must be in sin because everywhere he goes, he struggles. Look at all the trials he goes. Why does everything go wrong in his life? Because it's very easy to convince immature believers that when there's trouble in your life, it must be a sign of sin. It's so easy. If some of you just fall into that pit all the time, and you're just blind and immature, and, and that's okay. You just got to grow. But you just need to know that whenever you think that, whenever you think that, whenever you see something, oh, there must be something, just say, wow, I, I've got some growing to do. You're immature. And so... 
They're just saying, look at all the suffering in Paul's life. Now, is Paul immature? Is Paul in sin? You see what I'm saying? Like the Bible is so clearly saying that that's not true. But it makes sense to the flesh. Relationally, what are they, what are they saying about Paul? Oh, they're saying, well, Paul, see, Paul uses people. He manipulates people for his own gain. Paul writes these very stern letters and, and gives us all this great information. But when he comes, he looks weak and feeble, and he preaches the gospel for free. And so what free things can't be worth anything. And he's not commanding in his presence and in his delivery. And so, you know, relationally, he shouldn't be trusted. And then spiritually, well, that's easy. That's always the same thing. Well, what he's teaching is not true. He's tr- teaching something that's false. And so... You shouldn't believe the things that he says. So Paul, in his defense, starts to say some things. And notice how he's going to work from the inside out. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read just a couple verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 12. We're going to read to verse 14. Three simple verses. Well, not simple. Just three verses. Not simple. Verse 12, for our boasting is this. Now, Paul, remember, doesn't work alone. He's, he's uh, Titus and Timothy have both been involved in this process, as been other, some of the fellow workers of him. So for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. Verse 13, for we are not writing any other things to you than that you read or understand. Now, I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for these words. These are your words. We are your people. These words are a gift to us, Lord. We need ears to hear. We need you to come, Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts and minds to receive the deep things that you desire to communicate to us. Lord, banish all distractions from our minds. We pray that we might focus upon you. May each of us individually hear that and only that which you desire for us to hear. Lord, I pray you take command of my voice and mouth and faculties that it might be pleasing Only unto you that which I say. Deliver us from downloading information to the experience of transformation. Send your spirit to bring comfort. Oh, Lord, I pray that the comforter would come into this place in a tangible, real, significant way. And bring the clarity and the conviction that we are in need of. All for your glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See, many, many factors make up the effectiveness of a pastor. See, these are things you don't necessarily think about, but they're things I constantly think about. But one of the most pivotal, maybe... The most pivotal, but certainly one of the most pivotal factors in the effectiveness of a shepherd is the degree to which he knows his flock. You know what I hate? 
I hate speaking to strangers. I don't mean one-on-one, I mean preaching. It's completely different than this. It's completely different. Although it's the same truth, although I know it's all God's work, I know it, but for me personally, and, and here's why, because I have been extraordinarily spoiled. One of the greatest gifts God's given me is just to spend my whole entire life in one place. What a blessing. What a gift. Thank God for that. And it's, it's really just so shaped me. Now, see, Paul is in sync with the needs of the people that he's writing to. He understands where they are spiritually. He understands their vulnerabilities, their strengths, their weaknesses. He, he knows them. That's, that's, that's so encouraging to me. See, because we know, because we just studied 1 Corinthians, what, what is one of the primary things that we learned about the, the struggles of the people in Corinth in 1 Corinthians as we dealt with this week in and week out in various different ways? They had all sorts of of problems and competitions and whether it's with regards to what led to sexual immorality or spiritual gifts or all these things. But in the midst of all that, what kept coming up was their pride and their boasting. And that's still a problem. And so Paul, notice what he does. He, he starts by saying, for our boasting. Now, I don't know if that really grabs you or not, but it ought to grab you. Because I do this to you all the time. I talk to you about things that you're struggling with and you don't even know I'm talking to you about it. Because I'm just mentioning them in other ways to bring it into your mind. Because sometimes I know that when I just come straight out with something, you put a wall up. Those of you that are struggling with these particular things. See, all of you have things that you're very resistant to, and you have other things that you're very open to. You're very open to me. This is the thing about all of us. We're very open to conversations about other people's problems. That doesn't bother you at all, really. But when God starts stepping on your issue. You get riled up. So sometimes the Holy Spirit will, will give the shepherd insight to be able to deal with things in a very uh, sensitive and, you know, almost subconscious way, honestly. Yeah. And so he starts by talking about boasting. But here's, here's what I want us to focus on is what he says. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience is that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Conscience. Now, when I want to talk to somebody who is a sermon expert, well, I have, a, I have that built into my team, see, because there is nobody that I know of who has even come close to hearing as many sermons as my wife. Because from the day she came into this world, she lived as a pastor's kid. She said the one thing she didn't want to do was marry a pastor. 
And let me assure you, the man she married was not a pastor. And if you even, you know, if you've ever spent any time around me, you, you know that I, I can't even really, I can't have a conversation without preaching. I'm always preaching, always. And so she is the sermon expert. And I, so I asked her yesterday, I said, honey, I have to ask you a question. Have you ever heard a sermon on conscience? She thought for a minute. She said, just about conscience? And I said, primarily about conscience. She said, no. And I said, well, I know why. Because it is a royal pain in the neck. Man, does God have a lot to say about conscience. It's one of those things that's a really big deal, but that nobody really wants to talk about. Because I think we struggle with maybe how to understand it or approach it. Or, but it's constantly coming up. And in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, it is just a continuous. But it's all through the Old Testament. All, I thought about it in Acts 23, Acts 24, 1 Corinthians 4. We dealt with it multiple times in 1 Corinthians. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. There's just tons of, of references to conscience. So what is conscience? Let's just talk about this for a moment. The conscience. What, what is your conscience? Because I know there's a lot of confusion in the room about this. The conscience is a, it's a God-given gift placed within every person to help us sense right from wrong. That's a very simple explanation of what the conscience is. It's a God-given gift placed within every person to help us sense between right from wrong. Everyone has one. Saved people have one. Lost people have one. No matter how unspiritual you are, no matter how uh, horrific or horrendous or whatever you want to call your behavior or morality or lack thereof or whatever it is, every person has a conscience. So, for example, in the book of Romans... Lots to say about conscience. Just another little point for those of you who are here Wednesday night. I haven't listened to last Wednesday night's message. But many of you have. You were here. And so this morning before service, Pastor Matt looked at the handout and he said, well, that's interesting. This exact Thing that I'm about to say, he said Wednesday night. So I'm just pointing out to you that God is speaking to this fellowship on this. That I'm about to quote exactly what he said. And I wasn't here, didn't talk to him, had no, I didn't even know what psalm he was preaching on because he switched from the one that he told me when I left to go to Brazil that he was going to preach on. Romans chapter 2, here's what the Bible says. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ 
Jesus. See, in other words, God would be completely just if he judged people whether on, on whether or not they did the good that they know to do, even if their knowledge is limited. Because what the Bible is teaching is that God has written the law in our hearts. This is connected to conscience. And so what, what literally exactly what Paul says in verse 15 of Romans 2 is that the conscience either accuses or excuses, which is exactly what Pastor Matt said verbatim this past Wednesday night. It either accuses or it excuses. That's the primary function, according to Scripture, that the conscience serves. Now, you, you need to understand, it's going to get a little, so think with me, okay? The conscience is not a moral compass. You like, you should repeat that in your head, because that's where a lot of you got, go off the track. The conscience is not a moral compass. It is an alarm system connected to your moral compass. That's, that's all it is. You see, I don't need to have the law in front of me to know that it's wrong to steal another man's wife. Everyone who has ever done that knows that it's wrong. They just know that it's wrong. But they do it anyway because the conscience excuse. You see? They, you know that's wrong. Every person deep down has the basic foundational understanding because it's written in our heart of right and wrong. So children just, they know. They know certain things are right and certain things are wrong. But there's lots of things they don't know yet. But the things they just naturally know, well, how do they know that? Because the law is written on their heart. And the conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right. That's what it does. And it restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. So here's what you got to understand. It is not. The conscience is not infallible. It's not infallible. The conscience on its own cannot teach you what is right and what is wrong. Do you understand that? The conscience does not, cannot teach you what is right and what is wrong. The conscience is more like a window than a light. See, a light produces light and illuminates something. A window merely allows the light to come through so that you can see what already exists. It's a, it's a window. It's a window. So when we violate conscience, what happens? It triggers something. It's not infallible. It can't teach us right from wrong, but it's there. Stay with me. So when you violate it, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's always right. I'm just saying when you violate it, what happens? It triggers in us feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, remorse, regret, fear, anxiety, even depression. So, something bothers you, but you don't know why it bothers you. And if the violation of our conscience is not addressed, oh, it, then it, it can lead to even greater and greater sinfulness, right? It becomes habitual, so we have to be careful. But when a person follows their conscience, 
what, what happens? You, you know, when you get out to your car and realize that the, the, the lady gave you more change than she was supposed to, and you're in that moment of, do I go back and give it back, or it doesn't matter, what, that your conscience is working. And so if you get in your car and drive away, you have, to, you have to address it. You have to excuse it. You have to, but if you go back in, and then because you, why? Because it triggers these feelings that, that are uncomfortable. So it has to be resolved. But if you go back in and you give the money back, it also triggers something. Feelings of what? Peace. Yes. It brings peace. It brings serenity. It brings gladness. It brings joy. So two extremes, two extremes. The first one, I mean, obviously, it's not rocket science, is, well, nothing bothers you. There are people that we would say they don't have a conscience. Well, that's not true. But what it means is that the conscience is defiled or seared, the Bible says. A conscience that has been violated so much. And so often that what was once a loud voice now becomes a faint, maybe even indiscernible whisper. You can't even hear it because you've ignored it and you've violated it so oftentimes that it has no more, no more power, capacity. See, the Bible says in 1, Corinthians, I mean 1 Timothy 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits. Giving heed. Not, this wasn't forcible. This was a decision. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines and demons. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. With a hot iron. When you ignore your conscience repeatedly and habitually, it can ultimately shipwreck, the Bible says, your faith. See, again in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. The conscience is of great importance. You see, because if, if I would have told you this morning in the very beginning, opening moments of this message, if I would have just said, look, we're going to talk about something this morning that if you don't understand and pay close attention to, it could shipwreck your faith. I'm talking about so you, you, you the faith that you think you have right now could be shipwrecked. And yet most people are completely ignorant with regards to how the conscience works and the importance of it. See, the gift God gave to you and me in a conscience is a warning system. It's a warning system. And by violating it, by searing it, it's now a, an untrusty, untrustworthy, broken system. So you have a system, but the battery's dead. It, it doesn't work anymore. So what good is it? It no longer works as it was once intended. Isn't it interesting that the the, the Holy Spirit uses the conscience to bring about the conviction of sin, right? Okay? So, it's interesting. Then the Bible says in Luke chapter 12 
that there's an unpardonable sin. Many of you are familiar with this, wrestle with this, have all sorts of opinions about this, many of which are wrong. Uh, just going to point that out. The unpardonable sin. So in Luke chapter 12, it talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, now remember, it's interesting. The Holy Spirit uses the conscience to bring about conviction of sin. Then there's this unpardonable sin the Lord talks about, which is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, ignoring the Holy Spirit over and over until you can no longer hear. Hmm. So when we sin, what are we doing? We're rejecting God's authority. And if we repeat our sin over and over, over time, the rejection of God's authority becomes an automatic reflex. Do you see how all those things work together? Do you see how? So like the most, the, the most damning, the, most, the, the ultimate danger is all, it's all in this thread. It's all connected here. To willfully, now this is going to be new information to many of you. I'm going to try to give you some dumb illustrations to explain this. To willfully violate or act against conscience is always sin. I want you to think about what I just said. Because I just told you conscience is not infallible. Conscience can't teach you what's right and what's wrong. Conscience operates on your perceived right and wrong. So conscience isn't always right. But then I said to act against conscience is always sin. Wait, what? Yes. See, our conscience should always be informed by what God has said. That's what it should be. Okay, we're going to get there in a minute. But, but what if we're mistaken about what the Bible commands or forbids, which is very common, right? Well, yes. So what if, for example, what if, for example, you were convinced that it was wrong for a Christian to eat bacon? I'm so sorry. But what if you were convinced? You know you read the Bible, you're a new Christian, you thought, well, we're still under the Mosaic law, and so it's unclean and we shouldn't eat bacon. And so you're convinced in your conscience that it's wrong to eat bacon. And then you eat bacon. It's a sin. Now, wait a minute, are you saying it's a sin to eat bacon? Dear God, no. But it's always a sin to do something that you think is wrong and to do it anyway. Do you see that? You see? Yes. See, so what if you're, what if you're in your neighbor's house and you see a wallet on the ground? And you go, hey, and you pick the wallet up, open it up, and take the money out of the wallet put it in your pocket. Do you think it's your neighbor's wallet or somebody's wallet? You don't know, so you take the money and put it in your wallet. And then later on, you realize it's your wallet. 
Did you sin? You sinned. Because you did something that you knew was wrong, but you did it anyway. Even if you were wrong about it being wrong. You got that? Okay. So are we clear? Eat bacon. See, what we need to do is calibrate or adjust or train our conscience. So, we, so, so you come to me and you say, Pastor Tony. Now, I mean, this, is, this sounds hilarious to us, but trust me, I've had these conversations on the mission field. And you got to remember, I'm dealing with people who never heard of Jesus. This is the first time. So they come to me and they go, I mean, I, I would walk into a place and they go, we need to talk to you right now. Okay. Well, we're reading the Bible and, we're, and it's saying we shouldn't be eating meat that has blood in it. We should be doing, uh, and, and they're like panicking. And I say, okay, sit down. Let's read Mark chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14. And I explain it to them. But I also say, so before I fix this, what have you been doing? Well, we don't know we've been worried about it, but we, I said, hey, if you've been worried about it, you shouldn't have been doing it. You see? Here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 14. Paul says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. See? Now, now Paul's already said none of this matters. We already know the Bible says it's all a gift from God. It's all clean. Eat it. We're talking about, you know, meat offered to idols. But because the eating is not from faith. See, he's doing it in his, he, his, his conscience is saying don't do it, but you're doing it anyway. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See that? So nothing bothers you. And then on the other extreme, you've got everything bothers you. See, we think, well, number one, that doesn't apply to us. All those people are on death row. Not necessarily. Some of them go to church here. I mean, not for long, but you're here now. Everything bothers you. Now, more of these people. We encounter on a regular basis. This is the weak conscience. This is the immature conscience. This is the, you know, this, this is the, you got to realize we're hundreds of people on this journey together, but all in different places. And so we can't expect people who are new to the journey or, or, or you know, just figuring things out to be where we are. So we, we look again at Romans 14. And here's what the Bible says. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are many so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. 
You see, there are people who everything bothers them because they have a weak conscience and they're, 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 they're constantly struggling, doubting. See, oftentimes when, when, you, when you, you come and you talk to me or one of the pastors about the, you're doubting your salvation, then we start talking. But I understand that it's a process and that part of this process is God has to strengthen your conscience. And that's where a lot of that doubting is coming from. And we need to resolve. Are you, uh, are you excusing something that shouldn't be excused? Or are you, you know, well, what's going on there? What's going, what's going on there is, is, has to do with the conscience. And so when you, when you are constantly feeling guilty about something or you're burdened about something, you're bothered about something, you need to talk to somebody who's more mature than you. You need to reach out to one of the pastors or the, the elders or your community group leader or somebody that you know that's more mature than you. You need to say, hey, this is bothering me. Can you help me with this? Because what? You're calibrating your conscience. Here's the question you're asking. I need to know, is my conscience, do, do I need to, what do I need to do here? Is my, is my truth off? Do I need to obey this? Well, what's that? But, but you've got to resolve it. You can't ignore it. That's the key. You cannot ignore it. Now, how, what, what do I mean by people? This is, this is a series. I told Pastor Matt, we're going to have to preach a series on, on the conscience because well, there's so many things I want to say that I can't say. But let me suffice it to say, most people, most of you, that everything bothers you. The way that happened is early on, unfortunately, in your formative years, you were exposed to legalism. And one of the disastrous ramifications to legalism is that it, it really jacks up your conscience. And so you're constantly bothered by things that you ought not be bothered by. Because legalism trains you to do that. To earn your right standing with God based on what we do. Mm. No. So we have to train our conscience. We can't, cannot ignore it. What makes the conscience healthy is a steady diet of, listen closely, understanding Scripture. So, so now, yes, there are times when your conscience is calibrated when you're reading the Word of God and the Holy Spirit gives you illumination into things and you go and a light bulb comes on and your conscience is constantly being calibrated. Your conscience is not being calibrated by reading the Word of God. It is being calibrated by rightly understanding the Word of God. This is one of the primary reasons why it's so important for you to be in church. Because one of the great things that happens at church is that you are taught things and things are explained to you through sermons and through other people's lives and discussion where your conscience is calibrated in a very tangible, meaningful way. It's very, very important. So the more I understand and devote myself to Scripture, see, not the more I legalistically read, the, that, that's not going to help you. 
the more I understand and devote myself to Scripture, the healthier my conscience becomes. So see, the principle would be this, that your truth dictates your conscience. So you better make absolutely sure that your truth is the truth. Your conscience operates on your truth. That's how it operates. See, when you say, well, how did, how did my conscience become what my conscience is? Well, that's a great question. As you were growing up, your conscience was shaped by your parents, your teachers, your coaches, your friendships, all the, your experiences, the things that were taught you, shown you, done to you, done around you, on and on and on it goes. It, it, that's what gave you the conscience you have. And for, for some of you, it was bad in an overactive way, and some of you it was bad in an underactive way. And one of the primary responsibilities of a parent is to raise children with a good conscience. Not to excuse things, not to accuse, you know, but to, to, to allow the conscience to be rightly calibrated and shaped by the Word of God. So when you say, well, what do we do here? Well, what does the Bible say? And then we're going to do that. That's shaping the conscience. It's shaping the conscience. So you have to make sure that your truth is the truth. Listen, the, the, the Christianity is filled with people. I'm trying, I'm trying to be kind here. Filled with people. I was about to say bozos, but I didn't. People, 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 people. Not bozos. People who act like bozos, but they're people. And they make decisions and do things based on their truth. And they ought to know better. See, they, they've, they've, they've walked, they've been around, they've heard enough. They ought to know better. But they've Damage their conscience. You can be in church every single, listen, every, you can never miss church. But if your conscience is damaged, if you've made it a practice, if you've perfected ignoring your conscience in certain areas, you have defiled your conscience and you have short-circuited your alarm system. And so sermons are not penetrating your heart in the way that God intends for them to penetrate your heart. Because you have all of these ideas that are completely unbiblical. And you just go, well, that's what I believe. It's wrong. It's not what you believe. It's what does the Bible say? What does it say? Now, let's be clear. Salvation. See, one millisecond before God saved me, I don't have adjectives to describe how seared my conscience was. 
my conscience was so defiled, so deranged, but God saved me. And in the moment that he saved me, I, I, could, I could give you a thousand illustrations if we have time of this truth. Our conscience becomes resensitized. When, you, when the Holy Spirit enters, now, then it, it's like you start over again. So the church is filled with people who act like bozos. They got saved they got resensitized conscious, and then they just started searing it again. And now, so you can be a saved person and just have a fried conscience. And that's why your life is a disaster. But God resensitizes it at salvation. See, in 1 John, think about this, and by this we know. How, what, what is the number one, what is the determining distinction of a saved person? The presence of the Holy Spirit, 1 John 3, 24. That is the defining mechanism of salvation is that you have the Holy Spirit within you. So when your conscience is clear, it's evident. See, for example, when you have a clear conscience, when you have a, when you have a, a, a well-calibrated conscience, you can withstand criticism. People that can't take criticism, they have a conscience problem. See, if my conscience is clear, then criticism is, is uh, it's not fun. I don't like it, but it's, it's not really impactful because I have a clear conscience. Like, I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, right? All right, so just look back for a moment at these three verses, okay? I know we've been going on conscience for a minute, but I want to show you something. I want you to just look, 12, 13, and 14. Remember, I said there were three ways Paul was being attacked, and then we're done. Relational, I mean, personal, relational, spiritual. So personal, verse 12, he addresses that. Here's our boasting, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves. So he's talking about personal. He's, he's refuting that. Notice that, see? Verse 12 is personal. Then look at relational, verse 13. For we are now writing. We're not writing any other. See, they're saying relational, that you're using people, manipulating people. That you, He says, well, we're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. He's saying, no, I'm not, we're not, I'm not manipulating you or using you. Now, I trust that you understand even to the end. And then what was the last accusation? Spiritual. And look at what he says in verse 14. Look at the end. That we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. We're going to get to that in a month, month and a half in this study, the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he's talking about. You're our boast. He's talking about what's going to be the conversation at the judgment seat of Christ. You know what won't be a conversation? You know what won't be a topic of discussion? When I stand before God? You know it will not be mentioned? A lot of things won't be mentioned. One of those things will be non-eternal things. They burned up. 
All the people that came and went and sat and listened, gave their opinions. but never had a true relationship with Christ. Won't be, a, won't be a discussion point. Won't even come up. See, when I stand before God, and when you, if you're saved this morning, stand before God, the only conversation, the only words that will be uttered will be about Genuine, authentic, real, eternal things. Nothing about the fake, nothing about the fraudulent. The only topics on the table will be concerning the role that my life played concerning those who are genuine. The only thing that's going to be discussed is what did you do in your life that lasted into eternity? That's it. So, how's your conscience this morning? Is it clear? Don't even think about leaving this room and leaving things undealt with. I've just spent the last 45 minutes illustrating to you the great and horrific damage you are doing to yourself every time you do that. You say, I know I should. I'll next week. I need to pray about it. I need to think about it. I need to. How's your conscience? Do you have a deep, abiding, real relationship with God? I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care about, I don't even care what you think. It's, what's the truth? Do you have a relationship with God? And if you're not sure, or if you're doubting that, or if your conscience is telling you something, It's pleading with you. It's begging you to address it. Don't master ignoring your conscience. Don't don't let your mind tell you he'll be done in a minute and then you're out the back door and everything will be fine. What is it that you keep doing? that you don't want to do. Now, why would you do something that you don't want to do? That doesn't make any sense. You don't want to do it, yet you keep doing it. You can't stop. You keep telling yourself that you're going to stop, that you're going to quit, that it's going to end, but you keep doing it. And your conscience is slowly getting fainter and fainter and fainter. And the longer it goes on, the more you sear that gift that God gave you, that warning inside of you.
How's your conscience? What story is your life telling? Who determines? Who determines the story your life is telling? You do. Don't say God does. You do. You. The real story of your life is being written on the secret pages of how you respond to your conscience.